Welcome, my friends. Welcome to this edition of Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. That's C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. And I will be your host for this transmission for the next hour. And here we are on April 20th, 2012. Thank you once again for tuning in tonight and investing your time and your mental energies in this alternative media. And tonight we're going to be picking up right from where we left off last night, where we were looking at the 17th anniversary of April 19th, 1995, the date that will live in infamy as the date of the false flag terrorist operation, also known as the OKC bombing. And of course, it was at 9.02 a.m. that a blast went off at the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, killing 168 people, injuring many more, of course, many of the dead and injured being children who were in the daycare at the time. And the case was immediately blamed and on basically two people, Terry Nichols and Timothy McVeigh. And the investigation was brought to a speedy halt as, unfortunately, more and more uh, people started speaking up and their voices got silenced about what really happened that day. And this is a subject that we've looked at in various different ways through some different uh, things that I've done in the past on CorbettReport.com. And tonight being Friday Night Highlights, we're going to look at some of my work on this case before and uh, and look at some of the different aspects of uh, very important information that has been ignored, swept under the rug, and covered up generally. And uh, tonight we won't be getting into the case of, for example, OKC whistleblower Terry Yakey, the cop of the year, one of the heroes of that day who was rescuing people from the smoldering ashes and who attempted to blow the whistle on what whatever information it was that he had discovered there before being found, well, suicided in a field. But if you want more on that, just type Yakey into the search bar on CorporateReport.com and you'll find some of the various interviews and podcast episodes I've done on that subject in the past. But again, that's just one aspect of the many, many different aspects of Oklahoma City that just do not add up in line with the official story. And yesterday was the 17th anniversary, so we did see an awful lot of coverage of it in the mainstream uh, establishment-controlled media, which uh, which did a lot of the usual pieces in the usual way, and uh, in their own way, basically paid homage to the dead without actually doing any justice of investigating what really happened that day. So, for example, we have from 9news.com a story like 17 years later, Oklahoma City still remembers and mourns. We have a, uh, a slightly different tack coming from uh, Tulsa at the uh, newsok.com. Oklahoma Standard set April 19th, 1995, talking about the standard of the respondents to that, that terrible tragedy and uh, the policemen and the firefighters and the citizens who pitched in to help pull people from the rubble of the Alfred P. Murrah building. Heroes, one and all, and definitely people who do deserve our respect and our, uh, our gratitude for the selfless acts that they performed that day. And I think this article does a good job of making that point. And yet, of course, does not mention someone like Terence Yakey, who was absolutely universally lauded for his efforts that day and uh, did receive a commendation for his police work. Cop of the year, as it were, in uh, in the wake of his actions that day, he made the cover, I believe it was Time magazine, it was a uh, Newsweek, something like that, in which uh, you can see Terry Yakey, uh, one of the first people on the scene that day, pulling people from the rubble and uh, digging till his hands bled in order to free people from that. 
And unfortunately, that is the type of sacrifice people had to make in the wake of that terrible bombing. But what really happened in OKC that day, and why can we not learn the truth from the official sources? Tonight on Corbett Report Radio, we're going to be exploring the OKC bombing and the truth that the government doesn't want you to know. So stay right there. We will be back with more from the Corbett Report archives here on Corbett Report Radio. here corbettreport.com and tonight is the friday night edition of the pod broadcast here where we are going through the different pieces of the puzzle and trying to connect them together trying to line up the cookie crumbs that form the trail that might lead to more information about what really happened on april 19th 1995 in oklahoma city the day that the alfred p murrah building was bombed and 168 souls were taken from this world by person or persons unknown question mark and this has of course long been laid at the feet of terry nichols and timothy mcveigh exclusively although there has long been just oodles and oodles and mountains of evidence to show that it could not simply have been nichols and mcveigh acting alone and what are some of those pieces of evidence well let's start getting into some of it and we're going to start by taking a listen to an excerpt from an interview that i conducted in april of last year with jesse trenadu and Jesse Turnadu, I'm sure many of you out there might know who he is and what his background story is, but he's a lawyer in the Salt Lake City area whose brother was suspected many years ago of being John Doe number two because he lined up with the John Doe number two uh, composite sketch in many different respects short, stocky build, the dragon t- tattoo on his left forearm, etc., etc. All of these things meant that he got pulled over in California and eventually taken to a federal transfer facility in Oklahoma, where he was interrogated and tortured to death by federal agents. And again, there's a lot of story about that and behind that, and which uh, it would be in your best interest to familiarize familiarize yourself with if you haven't already done so. So once again, you might want to just uh, do a startpage.com search for Jesse Trenadu or Kenneth Trenadu, his brother, to find out more about that story. Or of course, you can listen to the uh, interview that we're about to listen to in its entirety. But we're going to listen to just an excerpt from that very wide-ranging interview. I've done uh, a couple of different interviews with Jesse Trinidou now, and I think they're both worth listening to. Just a ton of different information on so many different aspects of the OKC case. We're going to listen to one that I think is extremely important uh, in this case, just as it is in 9-11 and 7-7 and all of the other major false flag terror incidents we can think of, which is the evidence of forewarnings of various types and things that implicate actual federal agents in the case even before the bombing took place. And I think it is pretty significant that there were sting operations, etc., that had identified the perpetrators and had been uh, on their tail or 
perhaps puppeteering them. I suppose that's uh, that's still to be determined in the documents, but certainly were demonstrably uh, in, involved with these people before the attacks even took place. Because what are the implications of that? Well, it can only be that there is definitely more to this story than we've been told. So on that note, let's take a listen to Jesse Trenadu, the lawyer and the brother of Kenneth Trenadu, who was murdered in this case and and which has really drawn Jesse Trenadu into exploring the OKC bombing and its very many different tentacles. And in this excerpt from this interview, Jesse starts by talking about some of the documents he had been leaked, proving that the government had forewarning of these attacks. And I had been leaked two uh, teletypes from then FBI Director Louis Free to his field offices in Oklahoma and I believe Omaha, and thank Kansas City. There were several FBI field offices this memo had gone to. And it was an FBI informant reporting that two days before the bombing, uh, Tim McVeigh had called this white supremacist compound in eastern Oklahoma called Elohim City asking for more help. And it had been reported to the FBI, and they hadn't stopped the bombing. I was leaked a sealed transcript from a federal court proceeding in which another informant was testifying that she had gone and scouted the target, the Murrow building, with McVeigh and others four months before the bombing had occurred. And if it were, they were going to blow up the Murrow building. And the government never stopped it. So I filed Freedom of Information Act requests for uh, documents which it occurred to me that what we were dealing here with was a, a sting operation run by the FBI. Uh, I've since discovered that the FBI actually had an operation called PATCON, Patriot Conspiracy, and they used it to infiltrate the militia movement in this country. And suspecting that what had happened here was a, an effort to infiltrate the militia to incite them to try to do something illegal and arrest them, uh, I thought that was the, the, the plan the FBI had at this instance. And I thought that for a number of reasons, but not only from what I saw in terms of evidence, but from what had happened previously. The FBI had botched the Ruby Ridge uh, situation. Waco was a disaster for them. They were having such pressure put upon them by the American people, the media, and Congress that they needed something to save their face, to restore their image and their credibility. And what I think happened is they set up this PADCON operation. The objective was to incite some act of insurrection or violence by the militia movement against the federal government to arrest the perpetrators or would-be perpetrators with cameras running and uh, be heroes. And somewhere, somehow, it went wrong for them. So, so to be clear, where does the information on, on PatCon come from, and is there anything in the public record? There's nothing in the public record that I know of. It's all from the Freedom of Information Act materials that I've obtained. But that's a, that's a marvelous story in itself, because I had been leaked these documents. And, and I filed a Freedom of Information Act request saying, I want all documents linking Richard Guthrie to the bombing, Tim McVeigh and others, and, and to this white supremacist compound in Oklahoma called Elohim City. Well, of course, the 
FBI comes back and says there are no such documents. So I sued to get them. And I had the documents. I, the FBI did not know that I had these two memos. Uh, the FBI also didn't know that I had an affidavit already from a retired FBI agent who said these memos were not frauds or fakes. They were real. And it came from the, the FBI director. And while the FBI is very powerful, it has one weakness that you can take advantage of. The Bureau, as they like to refer to themselves, will always lie, even when the truth serves them better. So I knew they would lie to the judge. And they did. They came back and said, there are no documents. And so I produced those two documents. I knew they'd come back and say that there were frauds or fakes, which they did. So I filed the affidavit from the retired agent. And the federal judge went ballistic on the FBI, and he ordered a manual search, and he said, I want all documents showing a link between the FBI, the sting operation, Elohim City, and the, the destruction of the Murrow Building and the murders of 169 people. They immediately rushed back and told the judge that we can't do this, Your Honor. We have informants whose names will be disclosed. It could involve their lives if, if it gets out that they were involved in this. And the judge says, black out the names, turn over the documents. And they came back with something like four or 500 pages of documents dealing with this sting operation. But the earliest document was dated on the afternoon of April 19th 1995, which was after the bomb went off that morning. And so I go back to the, the court and I say, Your Honor, this, this is ridiculous. There's no way this sting operation sprang suddenly to life two hours after the Murrow building had been blown up. It had to have been in place prior to that time. And the judge agreed. Once again, that is Jesse Trinidu interviewed on CorbettReport.com back in April of 2011. So once again, I wholeheartedly urge you to go to CorbettReport.com. And if you uh, go to CorbettReport.com slash radio, you'll be able to find in the show notes for tonight's episode, uh, number 116 of Corbett Report Radio, for those keeping track at home, you'll be able to find the uh, the in- links directly to that interview and uh, to all of the things that we're talking about tonight. And uh, you can go and continue listening to that interview where he goes on to talk about his uh, uh, how Jesse Trinidu got in to talk with Terry Nichols and the uh, some of the extraordinary information Terry Nichols shared with him about the bombing. Uh, lots and lots and lots of different things to explore. So again, this is one of those cases that the more you start to explore, the more you realize you don't know. So once again, I cannot but urge you to start doing this for yourself and collecting your own pieces of this puzzle. But on the PatCon idea, this uh, FBI undercover program to put agents in these white supremacist groups and the demonization of the militias, which had caused them such troubles at Ruby Ridge and Waco, well, uh, this uh, is a story that, again, Jesse Trinidu has been instrumental in breaking with the documents that he was initially leaked and then the ones that he got through Freedom of Information requests. Once again, this comes from source documentation, so it's uh, genuine research that Jesse's been doing, um, absolute yeoman's work on this issue, and it's now starting to filter down to the layer of the media and has been picked up by a couple of publications. And the most recent one, in fact, actually was just uh, out earlier this week, April 18th, 2012. Foreignpolicy.com put out an article called Patriot Games, 
talking about this uh, PatCon operation, and of course, it doesn't really get into the the meat and potatoes and the real real underlying implications of this, the implication that the FBI wasn't just watching these people and, oops, one slipped through. The the implication, the real implication of this uh, data being, of course, that this was actually either allowed to happen or even made to happen. And again, that's something that you have to come to yourself by exploring this issue and the various pieces of it, but perhaps a good place to start getting an idea of what PatCon was and to the, the scope and scale of this operation is to go to uh, even a, a puff piece uh, like the patriot games article again uh, it doesn't get to the, the the bottom of the story but at any rate it's at least opening the dialogue which can't but be a good thing on that note let's take a short break and we'll be right back with more about the oklahoma city bombing here on corbett report radio Welcome back to the program. You're tuned into Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And tonight we're sifting through the evidence about the Oklahoma City bombing to see what else we can find about the ongoing cover-up of what really took place on April 19th, 1995 in Oklahoma City, the day of the bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah building. And I say ongoing cover-up because it is still demonstrably ongoing with some of the very, very important information that continues to be withheld from the public. And one can only scratch one's head and wonder why... This is taking place. This information is still being covered up. Uh, well, one can only do that if one doesn't uh, understand that the government has something to cover up. If they have nothing to fear, they'd have. No- if they have nothing to hide, they have nothing to fear. So why are they hiding it? Well, obviously there are grave implications for some of the information that is being covered up, like the PatCon a story of the FBI that we were talking about before the break, but also due to other work that uh, Jesse Trenadu has been doing. Again, Jesse, one of the, uh, the real crusaders on this issue for the last several years, trying to get to the bottom of what happened to his brother, Kenneth Trinidu, who was murdered in uh, in a tangential way related to the OKC investigation and which really drew Jesse Trinidu into this whole story. Once again, I would suggest that you you go out there and find some more information about Jesse Trinidu and his story, because it is just such an amazing story. But one of the pieces of this puzzle that I've always been particularly fascinated about is the quest for the CCTV surveillance footage that we know exists. There have been sources that have told the New York Times and, uh, and local uh, affiliates of major network TV stations in Oklahoma City at the time of the bombing, there are tapes that do show the a rider truck pulling up in front of the building and that according to the eyewitnesses they do show two people getting out of the truck exactly as every single eyewitness of uh, timothy mcveigh that day t- uh, testifies that he was with another person this actual tape has the actual person on the tape and that tape is still classified you cannot see the tape of the rider truck pulling up to the building it's a multi-layered story. One of the uh, the pieces of that puzzle came out a, a couple of years ago now. In fact, it was covered on one of the first ever episodes of New World Next Week when the FBI finally did release some of the tapes from some of the surrounding buildings, not the Alfred P. Murrah building itself, but from some of the surrounding buildings that day on the morning of uh, April 19th around 9 a.m. as the rider truck, truck was pulling up and pulling towards the building or actually before, just before 9 a.m. And, uh, and amazingly enough, just one of those funny coincidences, 
every single building in the vicinity for the tapes of which were released had significant breaks in the footage, which the FBI explained meant the tapes were being changed, and apparently all of them simultaneously, just as the truck was pulling by, so that the rider truck doesn't actually appear on any of the CCTV tapes that were released by the FBI back a couple of years ago. Wow, how convenient for them. However, there is still the issue of the tapes on the Murrah building itself. Jesse Trinidu has done the legwork and even has testimonies of people who swear that they were security involved with security uh, for the building and know that those tapes were not stored on the building themselves, so there's no chance that they can use the uh, the canard that the tapes were destroyed on the building. Those uh, the, the tapes were actually being stored in off-site locations. The, uh, the feed was going to an off-site location where it was being monitored, so there do exist tapes of the bombing itself, and yet we still have never seen them, and you have to ask yourself why. And Jesse Trinidu has been doing more than that. He's been in court trying to get these tapes from the government and uh, so far having no luck with the FBI basically saying, oops, the dog ate our homework, we can't find those tapes. And uh, it's been a frustrating process, and for anyone who's been keeping their eye on it, it's been back and forth between Jesse and the judge and the FBI over what they have to search and the way they have to search it and how they have to report on what they can't find, etc., etc. Well, the latest part of that saga is what unfolded last month when we had this uh, latest headline from Deseret News, FBI explanation of missing Oklahoma City bombing tapes not credible, judges, judge says. A federal judge on Wednesday continued to question the FBI's explanation for not producing videotapes associated with the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing that a Salt Lake, that a Salt Lake lawyer has sought for nearly six years. It's quite astounding that documents as important as these went missing and the FBI says, well, they're gone, U.S. District Judge Clark Wadups said during a motion hearing. At issue is whether the FBI adequately responded to Jesse Trenadu's Freedom of Information Act request for footage of Timothy McVeigh parking a truckload of explosives at the Alfred P. Murrah building on April 19, 1995. Specifically, the Salt Lake attorney is after a building surveillance tape and dash cam video from the Oklahoma State Trooper who stopped McVeigh 90 minutes after the explosion that killed 168 people. The FBI has submitted several declarations from its top records manager to show the agency has searched electronic databases and evidence warehouses without success. But Wadup said the declarations lack credibility because they do not include first-hand knowledge of de- or details about who, when, where, or how the searches were conducted. That's not good evidence, he said. Wadup's delayed ruling on the FBI's motion to dismiss the case and allowed the agency until June 15th to provide a more complete explanation of the searches. I'll let you continue reading the article from there, but you get the gist, I'm sure. Uh, the FBI now has less than two months to respond to Judge Wadup's orders to put up or shut up, basically, and to actually show how they're trying to search their warehouses and their evidence databases for these missing tapes. And, uh, well, I'm not holding my breath waiting for the FBI to suddenly emerge with the tapes showing John Doe number 2 and all of this uh, this other stuff that shows that the entire FBI case was a lie. But, uh, but at any rate, it is still important that people are pressing on these issues that show that there is something still being covered up. On that note, we're going to take another short break. We'll be right back with more OKC bombing investigation right after this. Your name is Big Brother. You say that you are telling me on the telly. See me go nowhere. 
In the wake of the JFK assassination on November 22, 1963, the American public was asked to believe that a single bullet, Warren Commission Exhibit 399, a.k.a. the Magic Bullet, managed to pass through President Kennedy's neck, through Governor Connolly's chest, hitting him in the right wrist where it ricocheted and landed in his left thigh, therein implanting itself for several hours and coming out magically not on his stretcher, but the stretcher next to him at the hospital as he was waiting to be treated for his wounds in more pristine condition than an exactly identical bullet fired through cotton wadding. Then, in the wake of September 11th, 2001, the American public was asked to believe that World Trade Center Building 7, a 47-story modern steel-framed skyrise, effectively committed suicide, folding into its own footprint at 5.20 p.m., thereby becoming the third-ever building in history to collapse due to fire, according to NIST, and the first-ever to collapse due to fire without having been previously impacted by an airplane. Of course, the first two in that list of three being World Trade Center 1 and 2 collapsing earlier that day. So, 9-11 has its Building 7, and... 1122 has its uh, magic bullet. What about April 19th, 1995? What are the physical clues as to what was really happening at the OKC Alfred P. Murrah building that day? Well, that is just one of the many, many topics explored in the groundbreaking documentary A Noble Lie, which we've talked about on this broadcast several times now. So I certainly hope that you have gone at the very least to check out the trailer, which is available at the website anoblelie.com. And if you haven't yet, please do so. And uh, please consider buying a copy of the film to support the filmmakers who put an awful lot of effort into assembling this film with witness interviews and uh, interviews with other people who have been involved in this case over the years. And right now, uh, James Lane and Holland Van de Nieuwenhoff have been good enough to give me permission to air a, a large portion of that documentary. So we're going to listen to several minutes of A Noble Lie, detailing some of the physical anomalies of the blast, that uh, the ANFO blast that supposedly took down the building, versus what the evidence actually tells us. Once again, an absolutely blockbuster, groundbreaking documentary. I certainly hope you will check it out at anoblelie.com. But right now, let's listen to that segment about the physical anomalies of April 19th, 1995. The official story dictated that the Ryder truck, packed with 1,200 pounds of ammonium nitrate fertilizer and fuel oil, called ANFO, detonated on the northeast side of the building and was responsible for all the damage. That hypothesis later evolved into 4,800 pounds of ANFO, then up to 7,000 pounds of fertilizer and nitromethane? In fact, the only consistent theme of the official narrative is its inconsistency. The truck bomb just delivers an air blast. That's all it does. It's called an air blast. And when you've got eight-foot-thick uh, columns of concrete filled with rebar the size of your arm, uh, an air blast probably won't even, even break one. It'll break windows. That's about it. But some of these columns were ripped up, shredded, tossed around. Because a truck bomb is going to release its energy simultaneously in every direction and so the damage pattern to the building 
or whatever structure it's parked in front of and intended to blow up. If it's a big enough, big structure, bigger than a truck bomb can take out, there's the, the damage pattern is going to be roughly a semicircle. Now, I looked at the building. I was on the bomb squad for a couple of years. I've worked some bombings. And I looked at the building, and I knew that the damage done to that building couldn't have come from a truck with ANFO in it. A blast does not turn corners. And it did look like that there was a secondary explosion or a more intense explosion towards the east side of the building. Explosion, that, that portion of the explosion, did basically clear everything from the front of the building to the uh, south wall. The Oklahoma Bombing Investigation Committee was presented with evidence that explosives planted inside the building were responsible for the collapse and most of the casualties. In this rarely seen footage taken by the Oklahoma County Sheriff's Office minutes after the bombing, the north side parking lot is shown littered with paper and debris from inside the Murrah building. How did this volume of paper transport itself against the blast wave of the truck bomb and magically appear on the other side of the street? And then we look at the fact that you have bombs clearly inside the building. It's blown out across the street, pieces of it on top of buildings, the opposite direction that the rubble should have uh, you know, gone in uh, if there was truly this high-powered uh, truck bomb out front that caused all the damage. And I can tell you that the building was blown from the inside because all the debris was piled up against the general record building clear across the parking lot. In fact, several witnesses report that bombs were going off in the building before the truck bomb exploded outside. The first thing that I experienced when I was sitting there signing some papers for Ruth, I felt the building start shaking and never had anything like that happen before. And I just kind of froze. And then uh, the lights went out. It didn't get totally dark because the whole front of the building was glass. The uh, lights went out and then the debris started falling on my desk. And then uh, something hit me in the back of the head and knocked me out before the truck bomb went off. What that tells you is that there were other explosive devices in the building that actually brought the building down. The building started to uh, sway back and forth. It would, it was going back and forth. And I had sat there and I thought, no, it doesn't feel like an earthquake. And, and I was, you know, I was kind of stunned. And then about seven or eight seconds later, uh, I felt this explosion and you could feel, actually feel the concrete floor actually rising from underneath you. You could feel it coming up from the inside. It, it was like slow motion. We crawled under before the glass part was coming and everything. It just, it, it just seemed, to, seemed to roll in on us. I thought it was an earthquake when it started. It was just a, a kind of a shake and then it, everything started going like this. And I, I dove under the desk and then all the glass came in and the ceilings came down. And Three seismographs at the University of Oklahoma, the Omniplex Science Museum, and in Franklin, Oklahoma, recorded a seismic event lasting 8 to 10 seconds that suggests the possibility of two blasts. There were two energetic spikes. One was the truck bomb, and the second spike was explained away as air blasts pushing on the ground or falling debris. But a representative of the Oklahoma Geological Survey stated for the record that this spike was not the result of floors collapsing and that the last five seconds of ground motion did not have air blast associated with it.
The Kobar Towers bombing in 1996 in Saudi Arabia killed 19 U.S. airmen. That bomb was several times larger than the bomb supposed to have been used in Oklahoma. It left a huge 85-foot crater, yet there was no major structural damage on this simple slab building. What happened in Oklahoma City to cause the major horizontal support beam to fail and the complete failure of these two series of columns on the east side of the building? This collapse was responsible for most of the casualties. The crater, when seen from above, is offset from the major structural damage in the building. For some reason, the official story has inflated the size of this crater. The bomb, at least I've, I've seen where the reports from the different agencies have said the bomb extended from the cab to the tail of the truck. And one of the things that really bothers me about that is is the rear axle from the, from the truck went down and collided with the car in front of the Regency Tower about a block and a half away. The front axle of the truck was hurled eastbound and struck a, a parking meter about a block and a half away in front of the YMCA building. If the bomb was that big that that rear axle would have been driven into the crater and instead of being uh, split apart as they were. And uh, uh, the truck bomb itself to me had to be between the two axles. It could not have been over that rear axle. I was surprised from the even the FEMA report and the, and the published reports that uh, nobody could determine what the size of the crater was. And that's one of the things I brought up at the grand jury investigation is that the crater was half the size that they had uh, proposed in the uh, FEMA report. The crater had a five-gallon bucket sitting next to it after they had it uncovered, and you could extrapolate from the size of that bucket to the size of the hole as to what size of the crater was. And it was approximately 16 feet across. August 24, 1970, it was a Monday morning. Carlton Armstrong, his brother uh, Dwight, and two other perpetrators, uh, Leo Burt and one other individual, drove up to the side of the uh, Sterling Hall. It was a math research building. Dow Chemical had their offices there. There was federal government as well as the uh, university uh, faculty that worked there. And um, they had drove a uh, Ford Econoline van stolen from a math professor laden with four uh, metal drums, 50-gallon drums full of ammonium nitrate and fuel oil. The Sterling Hall bombing consisted of 2,000 pounds of ANFO, and it was set off right next to the building. The windows were blown in, the facade was damaged, but there was no structural damage. In fact, the Army Math Lab was closed for only one day. In Oklahoma City, a similar ANFO bomb detonated 15 feet away from a much more robust structure and inflicted massive structural damage. What that case did was it said it was a bellwether. It set a standard for us to look at. It says, okay, if ANFA was in fact used in Oklahoma City, why did it not have the characteristics of what occurred in Madison? Furthermore, the signature of an ANFO explosion is nitric oxide, a noxious gas. There was certainly no fertilizer bomb. We know that because there was no ammonia gas in the air in every other explosion. And they and some students blew up and did make an ammonium nitrate bomb. But everybody who rested that building after the explosion had to be hospitalized. If you ever smelled ammonia strongly, and you're talking about going into a horse trade or something like that, that's not strong, but that'll gag you. <clears throat> it will sear your lungs. I mean, everybody that smelled that ammonia gas after the ammonium nitrate bomb at that university had to be hospitalized. It would have been 30 minutes or an hour, depending on how hard the wind was blowing, before anybody could have even approached the Murrah building if there had been an ammonium nitrate bomb. 
there were other search and rescue personnel that were down there immediately from St. Anthony's Hospital and nearby, as well as uh, office employees from the surrounding offices. They would have approached the crime scene and buckled over almost immediately, vomiting violently, if there was ammonium nitrate gas. There wasn't. I was watching General Parton, the former head of Air Force Weapons Development, point out that the building was blown out, uh, that it wasn't the signature of an ammonium nitrate fertilizer bomb, that there had been a cover-up. The damaged Murrah building drew the attention of retired General Benton K. Parton, former director of the Air Force Armaments Laboratory. General Parton spent his career conducting bomb damage analysis with explosives for the military. General Parton came to Oklahoma City, examined the available evidence, and rendered a conclusion far different than the story being pandered by the government and media. I spent uh, over 30 years in the Air Force. Most of that was in research and development. I went to a two-year graduate program, eight quarters of armament engineering graduates, the first course that was ever set up. And after that, I worked at the Ballistic Research Laboratories at Aberdeen, which was two years of hands-on work designing, developing continuous rod warhead for the Blue Martin missile and other weapon systems. Well, the uh, truck bomb, even though it was fairly massive, was somewhat removed from some of the structures that were damaged. It they clearly had some what you call Broussant's damage, where the blast pressure was way above what you would expect to get from the truck at that distance. Brisson's damage is that caused by an explosive whose blast wave is powerful enough to shatter and destroy the material affected. The problem with the failed columns at the Murrah building is at that distance, the air blast from an anvil bomb would have been ten times less powerful than what was needed to dissolve the concrete and cut the rebar. Those columns, had they failed due to air blast, should have broken with sharp chunks of concrete connected by rebar, not sheared off at critical points. Brisson's damage indicates contact explosives placed directly on the beams. Even more perplexing is the total collapse of column B3, which caused the floors on the east side to pancake onto one another. The building was gutted to within feet of the other side. Column B4, closer to the truck bomb, is completely intact. Yet we are supposed to believe that a blast wave traveled through B4, leaving the sheetrock almost untouched, and completely destroyed the column farther away. And most of the front columns were destroyed when the supporting header beam failed. But the cause of failure, supposedly being air blast, should have thrown it into the building. Instead, it fell straight down and rolled towards the crater. General Parton's report was conclusive. The Murrow Federal Building was not destroyed by one sole truck bomb. The major factor in its destruction appears to have been detonation of explosives carefully placed at four critical junctures on supporting columns within the building. Many independent experts concurred with the Parton report. Sam Cohen, inventor of the neutron bomb, issued this statement. I believe that the demolition charges in the building that were placed inside at certain key concrete columns did the primary damage to the Murrow Federal Building. It would have been absolutely impossible and against the laws of nature for a truck full of fertilizer and oil, no matter how much was used, to bring the building down. The FBI put all their weight behind the lone bomber theory and tailored the evidence to fit that scenario. Dr. Frederick Whitehurst, a supervisor at the FBI crime lab, turned whistleblower over the Bureau's handling of the evidence in the Oklahoma City bombing. 
released a report today condemning the FBI crime lab for mishandling evidence and for slanting its analysis. The report is expected to specifically criticize the lab's handling of the Oklahoma City and World Trade Center bombing cases. It was the allegations of FBI whistleblower Frederick Whitehurst that sparked that investigation. Forced to resign, Dr. Whitehurst testified in Terry Nichols' trial that a fellow FBI chemist had changed his findings and lied under oath after meeting with federal prosecutors. The Office of the Inspector General, or OIG, investigated Whitehurst's charges and issued a report which concluded that the FBI crime lab had improperly identified the characteristics of ANFO, the weight of the bomb, the detonation system, and even what kind of explosive was used. The Oklahoma City case will get a lot of attention because what the Inspector General goes on to at some length to say in his analysis of uh, agent testimony in some of the pre-trial stages is that one agent in particular made sort of seat-of-the-pants estimates about the Oklahoma City bomb but then couched them in his reports, in his written reports, as being the result of scientific evidence. The FBI laboratory has built itself for many, many years as the premier forensic laboratory in the world. The people that did the things they did knew doggone well what they were doing. All right, we'll leave that clip there, but suffice it to say that is only a taste of what's available in this groundbreaking documentary, A Noble Lie, at anoblelie.com. Please go check it out today. At the very least, go watch the trailer. Spread the news about this uh, documentary because it does such great work in assembling, for the first time in one place, so many of the testimonies of so many people who have been involved in investigating this case, the eyewitnesses, the people who were affected that day, and the people who have stories to tell that contradict what we have been told about the OKC bombing. Once again, anoblelie.com. And on that note, let's take a short break and we'll be back to finish tonight's episode of Corbett Report Radio right after this. We're back here on Corporate Report Radio on Republic Broadcasting this Friday night. And this evening, we have been going over the Oklahoma City bombing of 1995 and all of the various pieces of the puzzle that do not add up to the picture that the FBI has tried to paint about this investigation and uh, the supposed guilt and of Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols and absolutely no one else. It was just those two just acting alone. And there's no other pieces of the puzzle to be uh, to be slotted into place here. So move along. Don't ask any questions. And sadly enough, for anyone who has studied this bombing or the 9-11 events or 7-7 or take your pick of any number of various uh, large-scale provocations over the previous years and decades, you'll know that that's pretty much the par for the course for these types of investigations where anyone who dares to question any of the pieces of this investigation or any of the complicating factors is called a crazy conspiracy theorist and immediately the the demands are made for the public to uh, who question the uh, the investigation to come up with a a complete theory of their own and if they can't explain the, the th- everything that happened in every detail and with in, signed in triplicate by everyone involved then it's just a crazy conspiracy theory and we don't have to look at it well as uh, as my friend Tom Secker of investigating the terror has uh, .com uh, the point he has made on this pro- 
program before and that I would like to echo here is that it is not the uh, the public's job to come up to basically do the investigative uh, body's uh, works for them and to come up with the complete theory of everything that ties everything in a nice little bow. It is o- only up for us to be the, the prosecutors and the, uh, the government uh, agencies that are purporting to tell us the truth to be the defendants defending their case, the case that they have made, that they have positively asserted, that they know all of these pieces, they know everything that happens. And when we actually start interrogating their case and find it cannot be true, that is the point through which we can reach all sorts of people who otherwise would not be listening to this information at all. Because so many people, unfortunately, have been mentally blinkered and uh, told that anything that questions the government, oh, you must be a crazy conspiracy theorist. No, we just have to show that the government's story cannot possibly be true, so we know that we are being lied to. And uh, there are many different issues to to explore here. There's the physical issues about the blast itself and what kind of uh, explosion took place that day. There's the uh, question about the videotapes and the surveillance footage that the government doesn't want you to see. And there's, uh, there's all sorts of other things, PatCon and the foreknowledge of the attacks, the, uh, the eyewitness accounts that, uh, that complicate matters that day, the Jane Graham and people like that who saw the, uh, the agents planting sticks of butter-like uh, material on the, uh, the beams of the building in the days prior to the bombing, etc., etc. There are, of course, too many pieces of this puzzle to go into here. Uh, too many that could possibly be explored in a two-hour documentary, let alone a one-hour radio broadcast. So once again, I hope you are using CorbettReport.com as the resource that it is and that it's meant to be. And uh, it's there for you to use and to explore all of that media that I've created over the years uh, that is available completely free for download and free to the public. So once again, go to CorbettReport.com. There's a search bar in the top right-hand corner of the uh, of every page. If you just click uh, your uh, in that search bar and enter your word of choice, for example, OKC, you'll find uh, all of the various different pieces that I've done on OKC in the past, uh, interviews and articles and videos, etc. So much, much, much more to be said on this case, as always, but as always, I'll leave it up to you out there to begin your own investigation of these matters and to continue the work that others have been doing uh, painstakingly and laboriously and with uh, very little credit to their name for that task of trying to first uncover and then to spread the truth about these very important issues. On that note, I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I thank you for joining me for another week of broadcasts here on Corbett Report Radio. I'm looking very much forward to doing it all again next week with a whole new batch of very interesting guests and topics, so I hope you'll join me then. So until next week, thank you for listening and take care.